This is Formby Podcast. In this podcast, we're back with Joan Rimmer, reading Viking Village, the story of Formby, published in 1973 by Edith Kelly and the Formby Civic Society. It's a ferocious read, but here it's made so accessible by Joan Reading. Viking Village by Edith Kelly Chapter 4 The Village of Formby The Squire and His Relations Formby Hall is situated to the north of Formby in a secluded and wooded place which lies east of the old road to Ainsdale. The Formbys claim to have occupied this site since the 12th century. The date of the building of the first hall is not known but the principal dwelling house, referred to in the document of 1250, see chapter 2, is taken to refer to a previous manor house. The present house was built for William Formby in 1523. There have been many later additions, but the centre portion of the house is the oldest. The battlements were added in the middle of the 18th century by John Formby, 1721 to 1776. He was impressed by the architecture of Horace Walpole's house at Strawberry Hill, London, built in the medieval Gothic style, and tried to copy it. John is also said to have been responsible for the laying out of the grounds, plantation and lake. The house was modernised in 1896 by Colonel John Formby, 1853-1933, who added the West Wing drawing room. Although this description sounds very grand, the hall is a very moderate-sized country house, attractive but unpretentious. The family has been fortunate through the ages in producing sons to inherit the property. Richard Formby of Formby, in a marriage settlement, agrees to settle this manor and chapel of Formby on his son, and if failure of issue, on his second son, and so on, and in such manner, that the same may remain and continue in the name and blood of the said Richard Formby during the will and pleasure of Almighty God, 2nd of October, Charles I, 1632. They have been a quiet family, looking after their land and seeking no honours or titles. One notable member, another Richard, was armour-bearer to King Henry IV at the Battle of Shrewsbury in 1403, and died in 1407. He was buried in York Minster behind the altar. In 1840, there was a fire in the Minster which damaged Richard's tombstone, and a member of the family asked for the stone, which had been cracked, to be sent to Formby. His request was granted, and a replica was made for the Minster. The original stone was repaired, and now lies in the porch of St Luke's Church. The inscription on the stone in Latin reads, Here lies Richard Formby, formerly armour-bearer to our Lord the King, who died on the September the 23rd, 1407, on whose soul may God have mercy. Another eminent member of the family was John Formby, who was the last principal of Brasenose, Brasenose Hall, Oxford, 1508 to 1510. This hall was the, was the predecessor of Brasenose College, which was founded in 1509 and opened in 1510. John became a fellow of the college. Although the family remained Roman Catholic after the Reformation, as most of the landowning, landowning families did in West Lancashire, and their names often appeared on the recusant lists of the 17th and early 18th centuries, they took no known active part in the civil war of the Jacobite rebellions. They at length adopted the established religion, becoming Protestant in the 1720s, when the squire was Richard Formby, 1682 to 1737. He married Mary, daughter of Thomas Norris of Ince, a descendant of the Norris family of Speak. The Reverend Richard Formby, LLB, 1760 to 1832, also of Brasenose College, became both squire and parson. He had ten children, 
A very interesting and sympathetic account of him can be found in Formby Reminiscences. The authoress, Catherine Jackson, was Richard's granddaughter and writes from her own memory of the squire as she knew him during the many happy holidays which she spent at the hall. The squire was a man of strong character, pious, wise and strict, but kind and gentle with his many children. A visit to church in his time was the event of the week. Of the, week. the family travelled from the hall along the sandy lanes in the family coach with footmen and coachmen. It was a jolting ride as the lanes were heavily rutted, even though they had been swept and partly levelled by an advance party of servants with spades and brooms. The parson's daughters went to church in black bonnets, clean bedgowns and linsey coats. The family walked in state into their private pew, which was lined with green bays and furnished with cushions and footstools. It was reached by a private door from an anteroom. The Reverend Richard preached from a pulpit screened from draughts by a glass framework, which he had invented himself. The servants and tenants attended too. The men servants dressed in stone-coloured livery with blue and white facings. Catherine Jackson remembers the neat, clean, whitewashed cottages with sanded floors, which the tenants occupied, and the respect and love which the tenants all bore to the squire and his family. Her account shows the squirearchy at its best, paternalistic, even if patronising. It is, of course, a one-sided picture, though a letter to Miss Mary Formby, the Reverend Richard's daughter from one of their former pupils at the school, confirms the love that the children felt for her. The Reverend Richard was not only honoured in Formby, for in 1798 he was made a free burgess of Liverpool, as a mark of respect for his unwearied and compassionate care in a variety of instances of the unfortunate who suffered shipwreck on the coast near Formby, both as regards their person and their property. A valuation of the property left in Formby Hall on the Reverend Richard's death shows him to have had about 500 books in his library, many of them books of sermons and other religious works. In addition, he had the works of Swift, Fielding, Addison, Pope, Dryden, Thompson, Gay and Young, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, poems of Burns, Molière's plays and Voltaire's letters. His own sermons were also published and one copy, owned now by one of his descendants, was in his library shortly after his death. Among the pictures listed were two Bruegels and a Canaletto. There was also a plentiful supply of port, sherry, Madeira, brandy, rum, shrub, cider and ale. Catherine Jackson seems to have been impressed by the sunshine at Formby and by the peacefulness of the broad fields and the quiet dunes. She leaves us an interesting description of the new developing resort of Southport in 1832. She describes it as a long, straggling village of detached, plain lodging houses at the back of the sand hills, with a paved strip of road between them, flanked with sand drifts and bare plots of burnt-up grass. There was one apothecary's shop, one draper's, some small provision shops, one or two small inns or public houses, and an excess of rather tatty donkeys. The road between Southport and Formby was through the sand hills and just a rough track. Formby people, she says, dislike the growing town of Southport. John Formby, 1785 to 1857, was the eldest son of the Reverend Richard. He married Helen Harper of Magull and lived at Magull Hall. He was interested in horse racing and first proposed the running of the race which later developed into the Grand National. Unfortunately for him, his racetrack at Magull was superseded by another, made nearby at Aintree, and opened by William Lynn, landlord of the Waterloo Hotel there. He was a friend of John Formby, but seems to have arranged a deliberate takeover. John Formby later published an account of the Liverpool races in 1828. 
he found it difficult to believe that his friend had cut him out. The first steeplechase took place in 1836 over natural hazards and was won by Captain Beecher on the Duke, hence Beecher's Brook. Anne, Mary and Elizabeth Formby, daughters of the Reverend Richard, lived on, lived on in the hall after their father's death and administered the estate as their father had not sufficient confidence in his eldest son to leave him in charge. The sisters kept a school for girls in the grounds of the hall. It was near the old pigeon house in an outhouse. They employed a school teacher, a cottager called Esther Brown, who seems to have taught needlework exclusively. Every day the sisters visited the school and heard the catechism and passed on to the children their gentle, kindly manners. They installed a cooking stove in the little classroom so that the girls could warm up their dinners and save the long walk from school to home and back again over the rough sandy paths. The schoolroom and the stove are still there and so is the pigeon house. It is an unusual one, built square with a pole in the middle with steps cut into it so that those who fed the pigeons could climb up and reach all the nesting holes at feeding time. The pigeon house is now very dilapidated and almost in ruins. It is a reminder of the days when meat was scarce during the winter months and pigeons were kept by the lords of the manor as a supplementary supply. Mary Formby built a new girls' school in Paradise Lane as a memorial to her father. The school is still in use as part of St Peter's schools. Mary was also responsible for the building of a new church in Ravenmills, almost on the same site as the old Formby Chapel, so long ago destroyed. The church was built in 1855 beside the deserted graveyard and it stood there for many years in a wilderness of sand with only one or two newly built houses within hailing distance. It must be admitted that this church, dedicated to St Luke, was built at a time when plans were being made to turn Formby into a seaside resort like Southport. Mary Formby was interested in this project and thought that a church would attract both residents and visitors to the area. See chapter 6. Mary Formby also built the parsonage next to the new church. St Luke's became known as the little church in the Sandhills. It was at first under patronage of the Formby family. Indeed, the old family graves are still there, some of them buried under the sand. It is said that John Aindo, the sexton in the latter part of the 19th century, when digging a new grave, dug up a stone coffin. This must indeed have been an ancient monument. It was buried again immediately, so we can neither confirm nor deny this statement. It is not certain who designed the west window of the new church. It is of stained glass in an original and very attractive design representing some of the species of wildflowers common to this district. The memorial stone of Richard Formby, as previously mentioned, is in the church porch. The stocks too are in the churchyard there, and until recently there was a replica of the old market cross. Both these formerly stood at Cross Green. The new cross was made of wood and encased in lead for protection against the weather. Unhappily, the wooden arms decayed inside their casing and for many years had drooped miserably towards the earth. The cross was put in the churchyard in 1879 by Richard Formby Jr. but has now been removed for repair and at the moment it is uncertain where it will be re-erected. The stone pedestal of this cross is the original one from Cross Green. There are circular hollows cut into the steps which are said to have been used for holding vinegar during the plague so that money passing from hand to hand could be first disinfected and blessed in the steps of the cross. The six-inch Ordnance Survey map of 1848 shows another pedestal from an old cross standing by the side of the road near to Formby Station. It was known as the Cop Cross as it stood in a hedge. This was probably marking a resting place for coffins when they were being carried along the sandy road to the old graveyard. It has since disappeared. 
The stone font, now in St Luke's, dated to Norman times, was rescued from a hedge near the churchyard by the sexton John Aindo. Another stone lies in the churchyard. It is known to Formby people as the Godstone. It is about three feet high and bears a carefully carved symbol of a cross standing on a pedestal of three steps. Some of the old gravestones bear the same symbol. Nobody knows where it came from or what its purpose was, though local tradition says that at a funeral it used to be the custom to carry the coffin three times round the stone before burial. This custom may have been adopted during the period after the old church was destroyed, since burials of Roman Catholics still continued to take place there as they had no burial ground of their own. The Godstone may have symbolised the church. It must be admitted, however, that this is still an unsolved mystery. Some of the old gravestones have been dug out of the sand and placed round a flower bed in the churchyard. The oldest one, on which the date can be seen, is marked 1712. This church stood almost alone for many years until the land began to recover and the grass and the plants grew again, covering the sandy surface. And once more, the people, many of the newcomers from the city, built their houses in Raven Mills and provided a fresh congregation for the church. And so the wheel had turned full circle. Another notable member of the Formby family was Richard Formby, MD, 1790 to 1865, third son of the Reverend Richard Formby. He became physician to the Liverpool Infirmary and lecturer in anatomy. He was a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and worked with Dr J Y Simpson on the use of chloroform and ether as anaesthetics in midwifery. There is a bust of him in the Liverpool Royal Infirmary. The Reverend Lonsdale Formby, 1816 to 1896, son of John Formby, the racing man, was like his grandfather, both squire and parson. He gave the land for the building of the Church of Holy Trinity and Lonsdale Road is called after him. Colonel J. F. L. Formby, John Frederick Lonsdale, born in 1882, was the grandson of the Reverend Lonsdale Formby. He was the last resident squire. Before he inherited the estate, the manorial organisation of the land had come to an end with the creation of the Urban District Council of Formby in 1905. With his typical colonel's bearing and voice, he made an impression wherever he went. He was interested in many of the activities of the people of the district and was unwilling to sell his land as he wanted to keep Formby free from further development. He died in 1958 and his wife died in London not long afterwards. Formby Hall is no longer the manor house. The direct male line of the family died out with the death of Colonel J.F.L. Formby and the estate went to a nephew, a member of an Australian branch of the family. Much of the land is now being sold for property development. The hall itself and the grounds are held on lease by Mr. John Morse Jr. who uses them as a rest home for children from the crowded areas of Liverpool. They are brought here and looked after by members of the Bronte Society, named after Bronte Street in the central region of Liverpool, where many of the children live. The hall and the pigeon house are both high priorities on the list of scheduled historic buildings in Formby. It is hoped that they will be saved from demolition as a reminder of the quiet days before the tide of increasing population swept over this isolated village. The village. Formby was still living under the manorial system of government until the early 20th century and the way of life was little changed from that of the 17th and 18th centuries. The tenants still did boon work for the Lord of the Manor, working so many days of the year according to their agreements on the Lord's land. One of the duties of Mr Formby's tenants was to cart coal for the hall from the Leeds and Liverpool Canal at Bursco, across the moss to the hall. The first team home was rewarded. The horses were decorated with ribbons 
and there was a dinner for everybody in the laundry. In return for these and other duties, mostly of an agricultural nature, the tenants had rights of pasturing their cows, sheep and pigs on the common fields and in the woods and the right of turbery, that is the right to gather peat from the moss for their own fires. It is true that this system had been breaking down for centuries and in most cases, by the end of the 19th century, the tenants' duties had been commuted to a yearly payment of rent while most of the strips in the common fields had been gathered together into larger units in the hands of fewer people by exchange or sale. Local government was still carried out by the court leet or village court, acting under the chairmanship of the Lord or his bailiff, and the tasks of keeping order in the village were performed without payment by members of the community appointed by the court. Officers of the court were chosen yearly and a look at the record of the manor court for November 1777 shows how many people were involved in the management of village life. The manor of Forby in the county of Lancaster. The court leet with the court baron of Henry Blundell Esquire and Mrs Mary Formby, widow, lord and lady of the same manor, 1911-1777. Andrew Brown, butcher, foreman, Richard Gore, William Longton, Thomas Rice, James Norris, John Sutton, Richard Formby, William Tyra, John Rimmer Merchant, Thomas Norris, Robert Formby Little, Thomas Formby, John Poole, William Shaw, James Longton, John Rice, doorkeeper, Appointments were made to the following offices. Constables, laylayers, pinders, burly men. For the south end of the town yards and for the old town yards. Burly men and pinders for Formby Carr and for the Wan and for the Church Lake and for the New Moss and for the Wickedale, the Wick and Blundell's Ground. Lookers that no wrong be done at sea, appraisers between the king and the lord and lady of the manor, moss reeves, house lookers, waif and stray lookers, lookers that no person gets star and that star be set where need requires, lookers that no person turn their cattle loose in the commons or lanes in the daytime without a tenter and not at all before sunrise and after sunset. Lookers that no persons turn more sheep to the common than one for eight fifteens tax. Lookers that no person harbour or lodge vagrants. Wreck lookers. There were also lookers that the drainage ditches be scoured and that the bridges be attended to and lookers after the cockle beds so that every aspect of life was taken care of and the people themselves were charged with the tasks of seeing that the bylaws were kept with the aid of burly men, that is, bylaw men. The personal names given above occur again and again and again throughout the history of Formby and Ainsdale, some of them being so numerous that they need nicknames to identify them. What kind of people lived in Formby? And what sort of life did they lead? We can piece the odds and ends of evidence together to give us a fair picture of life here during the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries. Formby was not a compact village settlement. It did not conform to the history book picture of the manor. In the first place, there were two lords of the manor who occasionally had differences about their rights. Until the 18th century, there were three villages, Ravenmills, Formby and Ainsdale. After the partial destruction of Ravenmills and the inward migration of its population, there were two village centres, one at Cross Green and one around the new church in Green Lane. And between the two centres lived a scattered population of small farmers and agricultural workers and the usual craftsmen necessary for the everyday life of such a community. The blacksmith, the tailor, one or two weavers, 
a shoemaker, a brewer, several innkeepers, a miller or two, a brazier, a bricklayer, a shopkeeper, a few sailors and some fishermen. There was not always a doctor in residence. In Little Crosby, when a doctor was needed, the squire had to send to Wigan, Liverpool, Ormskirk or still further afield. Once, when a boat was wrecked off the shore at Formby, a doctor had to be brought from Southport. There was, however, in 1754, a surgeon barber living in Formby, as the church register of St Peter's shows. Henry Aspinwall's surgeon barber was convicted for shooting pigeons and paid 40 shillings, 22 informers and 20 to the constables, which was dealt to the poor people under-mentioned inhabitants of Formby. It is good to know that crime benefited the poor in those days. At Cross Green, around the village cross, the markets and fairs were held. The market was an ancient institution licensed from 1325 or possibly earlier. The rents of the stores were worth 18 shillings to the Lord of the Manor and were claimed by the Blundells. In 1730, there were stores for gingerbread, pewter, brass and bedding, which paid tuppence each in rent, but all other stores paid only a penny. At the market, there would also be stores for vegetables, peas, beans and potatoes. Formby potatoes were said to be very good and were very popular in the Liverpool market. Formby and North Mills were reputed to have been the first places in England to grow potatoes, for a ship carrying these strange vegetables from the New World in Elizabethan times was wrecked off the coast and the fishermen from these two villages, always on the lookout for wreck of the sea, which was also claimed by the Blundells, collected the potatoes and planted them. There would be freshly gathered cockles for sale too and housewives would be interested in the stalls filled with lengths of cloth from Wigan or Manchester and in the 18th century household crockery from the Liverpool potteries. On one famous occasion in 1799, a Formby man sold his wife at Cross Green for 15 shillings and a crown bowl of punch. For a small fee, a mountebank would extract an aching tooth, while another would sell potions for the cure of failing eyesight or stiffness of the limbs. When all the purchases were made and the business finished, the visitor might amuse himself by watching the cockfighting or the bear baiting or the archery competitions between the Crosby archers and the Formby team. There was a fair held at Cross Green too at which horses, cattle, sheep and pigs would be sold. It usually took place on June the 29th and seems to have been an important event for the landowners and their wives from Crosby attended it. Nicholas Blundell reports that on June the 29th, 1710, I went to Ince and found Sir Francis Anderton, Mr Blundell and his lady coming out of the gate to go to Formby Fair. So my wife and I went along with them. More often, however, the children and the maids from Little Crosby were sent in the family coach. And in 1715, Nicholas says, my children and the maids went in the coach to Formby Fair. There was a stage play acted there. At Cross Green too was the Cross House Inn and nearby stood the stocks and the prison at the corner of Phillips Lane. The prison, known as the Round House, was indeed a round building with a grating near the top and no window. It was furnished only with a wooden form. Malefactors would be left inside to kick their heels until they were brought before the justices, which might result in their being fastened in the stocks for an hour or two as a punishment for their unlawful behaviour. It is on record that the last person to suffer this punishment at Cross Green was James Charters, who lived with his wife at Spanker's Cottage at the corner of Liverpool Road and Ravenmills Lane. He found himself in this embarrassing situation following upon a youthful escapade at Down Holland Bridge about the middle of the, of the century. His wife Ellen was the local midwife and was nicknamed Old Spanker 
as she used this effective method of corporal punishment on her own and other people's naughty children, especially those who stole apples from the well-stocked orchard behind the house. The roundhouse was pulled down about 1893. Sometimes Formby people would go off for a day to the old established market at Ormskirk, famous for its gingerbread. They would travel on foot or on horseback across the bridge over the Down Holland Brook and along the Old Moss Road to Orton, then down the hill to the town. Sometimes they would go to Crosby to the Goose Fair. In winter, there would be plenty of fun when the snow was on the ground, for the flooded fields, lakes and ditches gave ample opportunity in frosty weather for sledging and skating. Perhaps the skaters went on from the fields to a dance in the mill, as the people of Little Crosby did. There were mills, of course, at Formby. One was situated in the area which we still call Formby Fields, although the fields have been built on in recent years. This mill was built in 1539 in Henry VIII's reign. It probably replaced the water mill near the Alt, which, since it belonged to the monks of Worley Abbey, changed ownership in 1539 when the abbey was dissolved. Every village had to have access to a corn mill, and it was usually the property of the Lord of the Manor who compelled his tenants to grind their corn at his mill and pay for the service in money or in kind. This new Formby mill was built in fields called the Short Dales, where Alka Road and Alt Road meet on the south side. The tithe map of 1845 shows the Short Dales with Mill Hill beside it. In 1539, an agreement was made between William Fornaby of Fornaby Gentleman and Ellis Fornaby of Fornaby Yeoman. It is summarised as follows. William Fornaby allows Ellis Fornaby to frame, build and rear a windmill on the short dales in Fornaby. William Fornaby to grant lands of which Ellis Fornaby shall take certain rents until he has received half the cost of the building, i.e. Messwatch is in the tenure of Lawrence Sutton, yearly rent, eight shillings and fourpence, Thomas Dobb, 20 shillings and six, sixpence, etc. Ellis Fornaby to have profit, William Fornaby to pay half repairs, 5th of June, 1539. William Formby de Formby was the lord of the manor for whom the hall was built in Henry VIII's reign and Ellis Formby, yeoman, was a younger brother. In 1711, nearly 200 years later, Nicholas Blundell records that he sold some timber for the repair of Formby Mill. A later mill, also a windmill, was built in Old Mill Lane at the northern end of the village. Its date of building is not known but both these mills are shown on a map of 1818 in the positions named. This later mill was a post mill, that is, it had a central pole by means of which the wooden body carrying the sails could be turned round so that the sails would always be facing the wind. Many drawings of this picturesque mill have survived. The miller's cottage too was nearby and the mill itself was in existence until 1885, when it was thought to be unsafe and was taken down. However, in 1807, a new brick windmill was built in Cable Street to the east of the post mill and leased by Henry Blundell of Insblundell, Esquire, to Henry Haskane, Miller. It had also a dwelling house and a garden. This mill later became steam powered. In the early days of the 19th century, there was a brewery owned by Dickinson and Rimmer in Brewery Lane. The beer made there is still remembered by the older inhabitants of Formby. They called it Jackie Water as it contained foreign bodies and was thick and yellow. In spite of this, it seems to have been very popular and one of our former council chairmen remembers it with affection. The first inn to be built in the new town of Southport obtained its beer from the Formby Brewery. Near the church of St Peter in West Lane stood the old tithe barn, where the tithe payments were collected from the farming population 
as a contribution to the upkeep of the established church. When tithe payments were commuted into cash payments, the barn was no longer needed and it was recently destroyed to make way for housing. There were pounds in Watchard Lane and Bull Cop, in Four Acre Lane, now Freshfield Road, and in several other parts of the district where straying cattle were impounded and kept by the pinder until the owner claimed them and paid the fine. Watchard Lane is shown on different maps under different names. Whiteshort Lane, Watchot Lane, Wetshort Lane, Wetshod Lane and Watchyard Lane. None of these names seem to make any sense. They are obviously a corruption of something else. The difficulty that map makers would have with the Formby accent can be imagined and many road names have alternative spellings. It is possible that as this lane passed the back of White House Farm, its name was White House York Lane, which said quickly becomes White Short Lane, or any of the alternatives. Another puzzling name is Deansgate Lane, which is given on some maps as Dangers Lane, Dangus Lane, and Danesgate Lane. This latter name has been quoted to prove that the Danes used the lane when they invaded Formby. We can discount this explanation since the lane led to the farm of the family called Dean and gate means a way or walk. So the lane probably took its name from those who lived in it, Deansgate Lane. And Watchard Lane led to the road out of Formby to Ormskirk, over the Downholland Brook and across the Moss to Alton. The road to Altka is a more modern one, built up on a causeway above the fields which was so often flooded in bad weather. Flaxfield Road off Altka Road led to the field where flax was grown and the name Scotch Lake, as in Scotch Lakes Farm, probably refers to the pool where the flax was soaked, ready for the scotching or scutching process of separating the pith from the stem. The cottages and farms were lit by candle and the water came from wells Every house or group of houses had its own well and some residents of modern Formby have been surprised and dismayed when reconstructing their old houses to find a deep well under the kitchen floor. If there was any sanitation at all, it was by means of cesspits. These have not long been banished from some of the more remote cottages. Health was pretty poor as it was in the whole country though if the infant years were survived, a person could live on to a good old age. Because of its marshy nature, this region was particularly prone to malaria and the registers of St Peter's Church record one such outbreak. So great a mortality was there in Formby in the year 1728 that in that same year were interred in the char churchyard of Formby aforesaid 94 corpses. At the end of the previous year, Nicholas Blundell describes what must have been the same epidemic raging in Little Crosby. December 1727, never so sickly a time known in Lancashire as from May till the end of this year, abundance died, but generally those over 50 years old. The distemper was an uncommon sort of fever, which either took them off or ended in a violent ague which often lasted several months and was scarce possible to be cured. And most who had these fits, fits had them after different manners so that they scarce knew when to expect them, being sometimes quartan, tertian, etc. And some had an easy fit and as soon as that was gone, had a most violent fit. In some other parts of England, they fared not much better and beyond ye seas, it was a very sickly time. When the distemper began to abate, the horses in several places were ill, being seized with a running at ye nose and a cough, of which some few died. The spelling is Mr Blundell's. I am assured that the, that the disease which attacked the humans was malaria, and that of the horses was glanders. When we remember the many diseases which used to be fatal, for which we now have cures, and that the conditions of life contributed to the rapid spread of infection, 
we realised that it was only the, the comparative isolation of these villages that protected them from more frequent epidemics. The Formby 15 book, 1679. A list of the names of people liable to pay the tax called the 15th in Formby in the year 1679 is printed here as it gives the names of the people of substance living in Formby at that time. The list was found in an old chest in St Peter's Church in 1864 by the Reverend Abraham Hume and later published by him in the Transactions of the Lancashire and Cheshire Historical Society. The document stated the amounts which each person was liable to pay. These varied from one farthing in a few cases to seven pence in others. The name Rhymer, Rimmer, occurs most frequently, 38 times. There are 17 Norrises, 10 Suttons, 8 Browns, 7 Formbys and 6 Aindos. The list contains 199 names altogether. 32 of the people listed are widows. This seems a high proportion. 12 people live in the park. Only one man is named as a gentleman and he is Richard Formby, but his tax is only sixpence, while Robert Formby pays sevenpence. The tax on the whole township yielded 35 shillings and eight pence. The first schools. The pretty cottage still standing in School Lane opposite Our Lady's Convent was in former times the village school. In 1659, an application was made to the Lords of the Manor by the inhabitants for permission to build a school on waste land belonging to the manor. The people collected money for the building of the school and the Lord of that part of the manor, Mr Blundell, gave the land for a peppercorn rent of one shilling per annum. The trustees of the school were chosen from among the people. By 1688, the school had run into financial difficulties and a petition was sent from the people to the justice, justices at the Ormskirk Quarter Sessions on July the 16th, complaining that Mr Hunt of Liverpool, one of His Majesty's officers for collecting of chimney tax, on 28th of June demanded eight shillings from our petty school in Formby, which never paid now, nor was demanded to pay till the 28th of June aforesaid, by reason it stands on His Majesty's waste ground, no salary, stipend or gift belonging to it, and the employment so little that it has stood vacant many summers, very probably to stand vacant for the future, the common school wages not being sufficient to maintain a tutor. However, local patriotism was to come to the rescue, for in 1703, Mr Richard Marsh, a merchant of London, formerly of Formby, who had been educated in this school, left an endowment of £400, which seems to have revived it. In 1711, there were two schoolmasters in Formby, a head and an assistant. On October the 15th, Nicholas Blundell reports, It being Great Crosby Goose Feast, I dined at Parson Waring's. With him were Parson Lettuce and his wife, and sister-in-law, Parson Marsden, Parson Mount, Mr Williamson and Mr Whitehead, schoolmasters of Formby. Parson Waring was headmaster of Merchant Taylor's School and Parson Mount was later curate of the chapel of Formby. The village school was a high school and at first was intended for girls as well as boys. 1750, another school for boys only, was built in Pigeon House Hay alongside Formby Hall. It was provided by the Formby family, but it was found to be too near the hall for the comfort of the residents and in 1760 was moved to another site on the old road between the two lodges, a site which became known as Old School Corner. In 1785, the school in the village was again revived and rebuilt, again at the expense of the inhabitants. This is the building still standing there now and it's now a converted into a cottage but once more, it does not seem to have been greatly used. 
perhaps because the salary of the masters was still being was still insufficient. The interest on Richard Marsh's endowment having failed to keep pace with the rising cost of living. The little school for girls which Mary Formby and her sister sisters uh, conducted in the grounds of the hall was established in the year 1812 in an outhouse near the hall. In 1832, it was endowed by the will of the Reverend Richard Formby with a bequest of 300 guineas. This money was invested and the interest was used to pay the costs of the school and the salaries of the teachers. More endowments came later from the wills of the Reverend Miles Formby, Richard's son and Mary's brother, and from their sister Elizabeth. This also was invested, some of it in land and farms, and the rents of these went to the school. Five trustees were appointed. One was to be the occupier of Formby Hall, and another the minister of St Peter's Chapel. The three sisters, Mary, Anne and Elizabeth, were to nominate successors in their wills. In 1849, Mary had a new building erected in Paradise Lane with a house nearby for the schoolmistress. Local farmers lent their teams to cart the material for the buildings. And in 1850, the new school for girls, or the female school as it was called, was opened by the Reverend Lonsdale Formby. 600 people were invited to a party on opening day. There were two schoolmistresses, the original one, Miss Esther Brown, and a new teacher, Miss Betsy Rimmer Park, who was engaged as a teacher of scripture, reading, writing and accounts, and all other matters considered desirable. They received the sum of six shillings a week and had charge of 95 to 100 scholars in winter, but considerably fewer in summer when the children's help was needed on the farms. The Reverend Richard and his children were certainly innovators in the education of girls. Very few girls of the poorer classes at any rate received any education at all at this time and the range of subjects suggested for them was unusually wide. In 1825, the boys' school from the old school corner was rebuilt with a master's house attached opposite to the new girls' school. The boys' school took in the boys from the village school, which was then closed. These two schools are still in use as St Peter's Junior Schools. The splendid condition of the earlier building, to which some small alterations have been made, is a testimony to the excellent way in which Mary Formby and her family carried out the wishes of their father. St Luke's School was first built at the corner of Ravenmills Lane and King's Road, at some time after the building of the new Church of St Luke in Ravenmills, that is, after 1855. The schoolmistress was Mrs Dickinson. This tiny school remained until 1911, when the present St Luke's School was built in Jubilee Road. It has been occupied as a cottage ever since, but is about to be demolished to make room for more houses. Later, at the end of the century, there was a day school attached to the Methodist Chapel built in Elba Lane in 1877. And this also closed when a day school was built for the new Holy Trinity Church. The Roman Catholic Church of Our Lady had its own day school in 1871, so that by the end of the 19th century, there was apparently ample provision for the education of the children of the village. The number of private schools which have existed in Formby is so great that it would be impossible to name them all. One, taught by the Vicar of St Peter's for a time, was referred to as the Grammar School. The building was near the church, but is no longer standing. Some 19th century schools still remain. Bishop's Court, a Roman Catholic preparatory school for boys, and Homewood, also a boys preparatory school with a junior department. Many others have come and gone. There are two approved schools, shortly to be renamed Community Schools, St George's School for Boys at Freshfield and St Vincent's for Junior Boys at Formby. St George's School was, till 1928, a convent for girls. Catholics and Protestants. 
So far, religious differences have not been stressed, for they seem to have had little significance in the life of the village. There were, however, from the time of the Reformation, two distinct groups of worshippers, at first not greatly different in numbers, and both apparently playing an equal part in affairs, in spite of the many disabilities under which the Roman Catholics were by law bound to conduct their lives. The two lords of the manor belonged to different faiths. The Forby family became members of the Protestant church about 1720. The Blundlaws remained, like many of their tenants, obstinately attached to the Roman Catholic faith. The extreme Puritan sects, such as the Quakers and the Presbyterians, seem to have made no converts in this part of Lancashire, as they did in the growing industrial areas of East Lancashire. In fact, during the Civil War, and also during the Jacobite plots against the King in the 18th century, West Lancashire was for the Kings and the Stuarts. It was said that during these troubled times, it was possible to walk on Catholic ground from the Mersey in South Lancashire up to the west coast to Lancaster without once putting foot on Protestant land. In spite of the numbers of Roman Catholics in Formby, the only church after the Reformation was, of course, the Protestant one, first the old chapel till 1739 and later St Peter's from 1742 onwards. Thus the Roman Catholics were driven to worship in secret and services were conducted by priests in Formby Hall up to the early 1720s and afterwards in Innsblundel Hall or, or at the Grange at Alka. At the Grange, priests were in residence and conducted services regularly and baptised, married and buried their flock with a daring disregard of the law, travelling around openly and sometimes conducting services in the homes of the people. Roman Catholics, as well as Protestants, continued to use the graveyard of the old chapel even after its destruction, for they dug the graveyard out of the sand in order to bury their dead there. Many Formby names appear from time to time on the recusant lists, including those of the Formby family until their change of religion, and including such well-known families as the Norrises, the Suttons, the Maudsleys, the Gores and the Rimmers, and of course the Blundells of Ince and the Blundells of Little Crosby, who persistently defied the authorities throughout the centuries by giving helping of all kinds to Catholic priests and Catholic neighbours. The Grange beside the River Alt was a well-known Catholic centre. It, proved, it provided, besides means for worship, an escape route by sea for per persecuted or wanted priests and the landing place for recruits during the plots against the king in the 15 and the 45. Nicholas Blundell too connived at these secret activities and was well used to having his house searched and watched. The Liverpool hounds hunted about this house. I sat in a street place for a fat man. He seems to have got considerable satisfaction from outwitting the king's commissioners. Only on one occasion is there any record of Catholics in the region being betrayed by a Protestant. In 1708, Timothy Ellison, curate of Formby, wrote to the justices of the peace at Ormskirk, complaining that three priests, Father Tasper, Father Wolfel and Father Foster, were christening, marrying and burying Roman Catholics. He supplied all the evidence needed for a prosecution. The case was brought before the magistrates at Ormskirk Quarter Sessions and among those tried for, for conspiring in these acts were Mr Molyneux of the Grange, Mr Blundell of Ince and Mr Blundell of Little Crosby. The accused, however, had friends in court and, as they said, got off their convictions and celebrated their success by dining together and drinking punch with Sir Thomas Stanley, one of the magistrates. When James II came to the throne, it was considered safe for Roman Catholics to come out into the open. And in 1688, the Catholic population of Formby built for themselves a large stone chapel on land given by Henry Blundell of Ince. It was built in School Lane. The Blundell coat of arms and the date 1688 was carved on the gable and the building was made in the form of a cross. 
But in that same year, James II lost his throne and the Stuart kings were succeeded by the Protestant William and Mary. The priest and the congregation of the new chapel were driven out, the altar thrown down and the building was used as a tithe barn for many years. The Catholic mission in Formby continued to operate and in 1712 a house was built by the Formby family for the use of a resident priest. The house was called the Priest House and bore an inscription on a stone plaque RFM 1712 that is Richard and Mary Formby. This was Richard born in 1682 who married Mary Norris. He died in 1737. It was shortly after the building of the priest house that the Formbys became Protestant. There was in the priest house a carved wooden cupboard or armory bearing the date 1691. It was said to have held the sacred vessels used for the celebration of mass. Nobody now knows its origin, but it was probably meant for the chapel of 1688. An old stone font was found in an outhouse at the priest house which also might have come from the same chapel. There is a tradition that the outbuilding had been used as a substitute chapel, but as secrecy was necessary, there is no written evidence to prove these suppositions. There is also controversy about whether the house was called the priest house or the chapel house. Both names are used in reference to it. The road in which it stood was first called Priest House Lane. And then, after protests from the residents, it was renamed Chapel House Lane. But then later again, it was, it was returned to Priest House Lane, which is its name today. The house itself was allowed to fall into such a state of dilapidation that it was taken down in 1958 for housing development. The carved oak cupboard is now in the possession of the Catholic Church. A letter written in, 1780, in the 1780s by the retiring priest at Formby to his successor refers to the priest house and also gives us further insight into the condition of the village at the end of the 18th century. As to Formby, it could do very well if you wish to farm and be among a set of humble and well-meaning people. The congregation at Easter is about 250 with great numbers of children but not employed in any kind of manufactory, so that any day or hour they come for instructions. The people are a blunt, honest and loving people, but you must lord it over them, or at least keep a high hand and not be too easy with them, or they will be masters of you. There are no rich people and none very poor, like what we find in the weaving counties. The house and ground is rented of a Protestant clergyman, Richard Formby. The house is entirely furnished so that I had not a farthing to lay out when I went. Your congregation will lie compactly about you. There is no need at all of a horse unless for your own private satisfaction. One and a half miles being the furthest off. Accommodation for the new Roman Catholic families in the district. St Anne's Church in Tim's Lane Freshfield was opened in 1933 as a chapel of ease for Our Lady's Church and in 1951 it became the church of a separate parish while at the other end of Formby in the Raven Mills area a new church, St Jerome's, has recently been opened to serve this newly developed district. All these churches provide an active programme of meetings and clubs for their parishioners. Monsignor Carr. Before passing into the 20th century, one personality might be picked out from among the many who deserve to be remembered. That is the Reverend James Carr, parish priest of Formby for over 50 years. He was born in Preston in 1826, was ordained in 1850 and served his first mission in the pro-cathedral of Liverpool. There he spent six years ministering to the thousands of poor people in the central district of the city. From Liverpool he went to the Isle of Man and during five years he established the Catholic Church of St Mary of the Isle, a chapel at Peel and another at Ramsey 
as well as schools for the children. In 1861, he was sent to Formby to be parish priest and in 1863 saw the laying of the foundation stone of the Church of Our Lady of Compassion, which was opened by the Bishop of Liverpool in the following year. Father Carr's great interest was in education. He became Canon Carr, and in 1880 he was made Diocesan Inspector of Schools and Training Colleges for teachers in England and Scotland. For his work in this capacity, and for his educational books for teachers, he was given by the Pope the title of the Right Reverend Monsignor. In his 75th year, he was still carrying on his educational work as well as his care of the Formby Catholic community. He died in 1913 at the age of 86, having been, amongst other things, parish priest of Formby for 51 years. That was Viking Village Chapter 4. Join us again. We have many more chapters to go while we explore Formby, Viking Village, written by Edith Kelly, published in 1973. Thanks to the Formby Society of 2021 for giving us permission to read this book and share it with you. If you have anything that you would like us to share, a book, music, an art or craft, you can contact us via email, formbypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.